Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there was a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But, but many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, we are being questioned today because we have done a good deed for a crippled man. Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognised them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot for everyone was praising God. For this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. This is the word of the Lord.
But let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for your word that you've given us. And we thank you for the remarkable events that happened in the life of the apostles at the time of Acts. And pray now, Father, that you would speak to us through your word and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you will know that uh, since I have moved to the Illawarra over the last decade, I have started surfing. Uh, Even though board riding can be a little bit frustrating uh, when you're still learning, it certainly is an amazing experience when you're riding a wave. Uh, You swim out the back and you get the right position, you paddle like you're being chased by a shark, and then you get up at the right time and all the hard work is done. You just let the energy in the wave push you along. Well, that's the theory, but, you know, for me, it's not always that easy. In the days of Pentecost, in some ways, it was a little bit like riding a wave. See, for them, it was... It wasn't exactly a tsunami, although it was pretty amazing. It was more kind of like the, a beautifully shaped pipe that uh, they uh, were, you know, skilled surfers could go down. And powerful, exhilarating, but sometimes a little bit scary. And all this came from the gift of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus poured out from the Father upon his believers. And as we heard last week from Acts chapter 2, It led to some amazing linguistic efforts by the apostles. Suddenly they could speak the message of Jesus in the mother tongue of the Jews from all around the world. And from that preaching effort, 3,000 people were saved. It was originally a few hundred and now the 3,000. And it didn't stop there. The church grew daily in number. But it wasn't just the, the size of the church the church was also growing in its depth and quality and its service for each other. What we saw last week was that the church was growing in every way. It would have been an amazing experience at that point in time, a genuine slice of heaven. You had that experience before? You know what it's like when you're sharing your life with others, others who are believers in Jesus, and it's just... Something really, really special there. There's a trust, there's a love, there's a joy. And I've got to say, friends, this is an experience I regularly have with you guys. We here, as we, we have this slice of heaven, this special community, this community that is formed by Jesus and grows in Christ. Now, in some ways, I wish that the whole book of Acts could be just a two-chapter book. Because it would have been nice to have finished last week, where we saw Pentecost and we saw the way that the church was formed and the joy and the power and all the things that were happening. But it's not. Because not every day is going to be as good as the days right after Pentecost. And that's because we live now life this side of heaven. We live in a world that is broken, a world that is fallen, a world that is under the attack of the evil one. A world where we ourselves continue to sin against God and against each other. This picture we have in Acts chapter 2 is one to cherish. But it's also one that we've got to realise is just a taste of what is to come. And so in the next couple of chapters of Acts, we start to see the impact of persecution amongst the lives of those who are in this church. The same Jewish leaders who sentenced Jesus to death only a few months earlier, are now going to grab Jesus' disciples 
and drag them before him. And it all starts, this whole thing here, in a strangely familiar way to what happened to Jesus in his own earthly ministry. But we read here, chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. They've gone up there to go to church, so to speak. In some way, they were still connected to the temple worship, even though the temple's now been remade made redundant in a way by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But as they're heading there into the temple, they meet someone remarkable. Verse 2, as they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so that he could beg from the people going into the temple. You want a picture that reminds us of the brokenness of this world? We see here this man who is severely disabled. Peter and John meet this disabled man. He couldn't walk. He never, ever was able to walk. And so he worked out a way in which he could support himself. And that was by being carried there by others to beg at a place that was strategic. And strategic because if you were a Jewish person going to the temple, it's a really good thing to give money to the poor. And so that's what he got them to do. And so verse 3, we read that when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Another day at the office, really. That wasn't particularly special, nor was the original conversation. Verse 4 and 5, Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. And the lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. It kind of, it's like another day at the office. But what happens next is amazing. We read verse 6. Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. We've already sung about it tonight, haven't we? Uh, you might think that perhaps Peter and John are just a little bit tight with their money. and thinking, oh, I'm not going to give it to you, mate. You're just a professional beggar or something. It could have been all sorts of reasons. But the gift that they were to give this man was better than anything money could buy. The gift they gave him was a word. They just said, get up and walk. I mean, more specifically, they said, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. They used the name Jesus to do something very, very spectacular. And we see what happened with that powerful name. Then Peter... Verse 7, took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. This was a profound miracle. This man is in his 40s and he's never ever walked. And Dr. Luke, with his precise medical language, describes exactly what happened with this miracle. Peter now brings healing to this man with simply a word. And what does the man do? Well, we read verse 8, he jumped up, stood on his feet and began to walk. And then, walking, leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. Can you imagine the sight? Imagine all these people sort of walking, 
one foot after the other into the temple to do their praying. Perhaps it was a little bit of a solemn kind of event for them at the three o'clock afternoon prayers. And this guy suddenly is dancing around saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, woohoo! And people might be saying, what is this guy doing? What is this guy on? And verse 9, they, they say, verse, all the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. But then they realized he was the lame beggar that they'd seen so often at the beautiful gate. And they were absolutely astounded. Now, I used to live in Newtown along King Street. There were frequently people who would be begging and asking for food and asking for money usually. They didn't really want food, but they were basically asking for money and stuff. And imagine if there was a particular person there who you knew had a very, very serious illness and was not able to walk. And the next time you saw them, they were running around dancing. You'd think, this is extraordinary, especially if you knew that they had genuinely been unable to walk and now genuinely could. This is the, ex the experience they all had here. Now, I've heard this story so many times, I must say I'm a little bit dull to it. Uh, I've sung that song that we did tonight so many times. Walking and leaping and praising God. Yeah, 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 off we go again. It's a story I know well. But the very first time, can you imagine what it must have been like? Just a, absolutely mind-blowing. He went walking and leaping and praising God. And in response, we read verse 11. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. And right at that point there, we see that Peter uses the opportunity to explain what's happening because people are freaking out. He says, verse 12, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? Now, I've got to say, I reckon that's a bit of an odd thing for Peter to say. You know, What's so surprising about this? It's like, ah, uh, he's never walked and now he's dancing. Oh, and you said it with a word and it all happened. I, I think I'd be saying, Peter, mate, it's pretty surprising. It is pretty amazing. But Peter wants to take this opportunity to say to these Jews at the temple that the supernatural God they worship does supernatural things. He's a supernatural God. Don't be surprised when you see this stuff happen. And what's more, he wants at this point to help them realise that this is happening because Jesus, who is God himself, has come and lived among them in this moment in history. And that's where he goes next in his little press conference. He said, For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this miracle. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. I, I kind of love Peter's honesty and conviction. He does it time and time again. He basically says, you killed Jesus. You are the bad guys. 
You acted together to do something profoundly unjust. In fact, he says, you killed the author of life. There's a poetry there almost. But what we see here is that the, creator, the creatures killed their creator. The creatures killed their creator. The one who created life was killed by the people. But this same one who created life is the one who can recreate life and can repair these lifelong injuries, these lifelong injuries of a man who is seriously disabled. And so Peter tells him in verse 16, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before, don't you? Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. He wants to say, it's not that he was a particularly amazing miracle worker, Peter. He says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It happened because we call on the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is powerful. Powerful name. And that's why this specific miracle happened at a specific time in history. And that's happened so that Peter could preach these words right here, these words to this important crowd. And so he goes on to say to them, verse 17, Friends, I realise that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. He says that you guys are guilty of killing Jesus, but you did it because you're a bit stupid. Okay. But he says that even so, it was not an accident. He says, verse 18, God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. It was all according to plan. It wasn't like God said, oops. So what should they do? How should they respond? having been told that they are the ones who killed the Creator. He says this, verse 19, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. See, this crowd that stood there before Peter and John at the temple had blood on their hands. They were complicit in the death of an innocent man, Jesus the Nazarene. And you would think that this would mean that if, since Jesus is alive, that he would now take revenge on them. You know, that's how the, that's how the action movies happen today, isn't it? We'd call it Revenge of the Messiah. Look what you did to me. Now I'm alive, I'm going to come back and I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's what we'd expect, isn't it? But that's not how it works with Jesus. Peter tells the crowd that if they recognise their mistake and apologise to God and now pledge allegiance to him, then they will be forgiven. Their sins will be washed away, wiped away white as snow. It's interesting, there's no reference there to the temple that they're standing near, to the work of priests and the animals that get slaughtered. None of that mattered. Now what mattered was the fact that they could say to Jesus, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? To what Jesus will respond? Yes. 
because their sins will be forgiven if they say sorry. Now, none of us here killed Jesus. None of us are that old. It would happen 2,000 years ago. But the Bible tells us that all of us, by nature, are born as enemies of Jesus. That's the default situation of every human. And unless we do something about it, we'll all die as enemies of Jesus. How do we fix this? Well, you can't fix it. All you can do is ask someone else to fix it for you. And that is, you need to come to Jesus and say sorry. I wonder if you have personally done that. I take it that most of us in this room have, but it's worth asking the question. There are plenty of people who are regulars at church, who have grown up in a Christian family, but have never actually personally said to Jesus themselves, I personally am sorry. People come along to church it's though it's a kind of a club. It's an association. It's an organization. But every single one of us, personally and individually, needs to come to Jesus and say sorry. And if you've never done that yet, maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. If you've never actually done that, you've got to do that yourself, for yourself, and say, Jesus, I am sorry. And the result of that is you will receive forgiveness. And not just forgiveness. There's a lovely other thing that I love in this verse, verse 20. Peter says, Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. You know what it's like when you're really, really tired and you need refreshing of energy. Or you're really, really thirsty. And you just need a glass of water to to have your parched mouth and your your dry lips and tongue have some moisture. Spiritually speaking, this is what happens when you come to Jesus and say sorry. He says, "I I will restore our relationship and I will refresh you. And that is what we receive here. Repentance brings refreshment. I think he's talking here about the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who is Jesus in our midst. He is the Spirit of Christ, the one who refreshes us. This is the blessing we have now as followers of Jesus. But there's more. Verse 21, we read that he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. See, Jesus will stay in heaven until the time is right for him to return, at which time there will be the final restoration of all things. Right now, we are in the in-between times. We're kind of enjoying the now-but-not-yet experience. We have the refreshment and forgiveness now, but the full experience of heaven is not yet. That is what it is like to be in the kingdom of God now. We have a taste of eternity, but we long for the full experience of it. But to try and emphasize this and to locate all of this in the history of God's people, Peter now refers to Moses and the prophets. And I'll read out a few verses to sort of set this context. Verse 22 to 26, Moses, he says, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. 
Listen carefully to everything he tells you. And then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. This is his sermon to those people there. He says, you guys are part of church history. All of this stuff in the past was promised about Jesus. And Jesus has come. You killed him, but that's okay. God raised him from the dead. And if you trust in him, you'll be forgiven. He says, you are part of this. And none of this is a surprise. In fact, the Old Testament said this would happen. It's your Bibles, he's saying. The Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament yet. It was still being written around them. But he said, the Bible says it, and here's how he proves it. And he says, this was done so that you would know that you've got to get on board with this Nazarene. You've got to get on board with Jesus, because he's the guy Moses was talking about. He's the guy Samuel was talking about. He's the guy all the prophets were talking about. And that's the end of his sermon. Get on board, so to speak. You think, what's going to happen next? Because last time he had an amazing sermon, suddenly all these people said, we've got to follow him. We've got to follow Jesus. And they called on the name of the Lord Jesus and they were saved. And 3,000 were added to the number. And the news just happens to keep getting better and better and good and good. But no, they hit an obstacle. As they're surfing the wave of Pentecost... There's a bit of a wobble in the board or maybe they hit a reef or I don't know what the analogy is. But they go into some troubled waters because we read now in chapter 4. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees, the big guns. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. These are the same guys who arrested Jesus two months earlier. The same guys that dragged Jesus before him and said, tell us, why are you doing this? Who are you? All this sort of stuff. And the same ones who said, crucify him. How do you reckon Peter and John were feeling at this point? Well, we'll wait and see just what it's like for them in a moment. But the point is that even though there was this opposition, it didn't cause everyone to get scattered. Instead, we read in verse 4, many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. For 3,000 people who got splashed over with the whole baptism thing at Pentecost has now swelled out to... I don't know, 10,000, 12,000, a lot of people. They are all there and the numbers are growing. In fact, the Jesus movement was exploding. It's very exciting. 
And this is the thing that caused the big problem for these Jewish leaders. They thought, we need to shut these guys up because this is getting out of hand. And so they throw Peter and John into prison and then it's night time and then it's morning time. And we get to verse 5, chapter 4. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of the religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander and the other relatives, the high priest. That's bad news. These are bad guys. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? The same assembly that tried Jesus. These apostles faced the same opponents as Jesus. And if they killed Jesus, what do you reckon they're going to do to Peter and John? Maybe Peter and John, as they were having breakfast that day, were thinking, this may well be my last meal. Because the Lord whom we love and serve, died in the same way. You think maybe at this point, perhaps, is Peter going to disown Jesus another time? To kind of worm his way out of this. Verse 8. Then Peter, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to you and all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Ha! For Jesus is the one referred to in our scriptures where it says the stone you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You see, this time Peter wasn't warming himself by the fire when he disowned Jesus. This time, he has the fire within. And that is the fire of the Holy Spirit, empowering him in the face of such clear and present danger. To which he says to them, I tell you how this happened. It's through Jesus, whom you crucified. Right at this point, Peter courageously points them to Jesus. I love how the Bible just paints people warts and all. Peter has taken a hit for the way that he, he disowned Jesus. But now you say, he's one gutsy guy, isn't he? He courageously points them to Jesus. And the result is a powerful impact. Verses 13 to 15. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They were just everyday Joe. And they also recognised them as men who had been with Jesus. Hmm. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, 
probably still walking and leaping and praising God. There was nothing that the council could do or could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred amongst themselves. Ah, get out, just go away for a little while. It's pretty hard to refute what Peter and John had done as being evil when you've got this guy who's been so brilliantly and beautifully healed. But it's a big problem to them. So they sent the men out and they have a crisis meeting, verses 16 and 17. What are we going to do with these guys? We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everyone in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. Oh, brilliant. Yes, brilliant. Just tell them to stop speaking about Jesus. Ah, that'll work. No worries. Brilliant. Did you see there that they actually realise that Jesus' name is powerful? The Jews saw the power of Jesus' name. It's kind of like a, the name that you see in these wizard movies. You know you, you, or, you know, you have this witch that has this special spell of a particular person in the name of so-and-so that seems to do these powerful things. This is what they're seeing with Jesus here. You use his name and these amazing things happen. And they said, basically, stop using that name, please. And so now, here we go, verse 18, they called the apostles back in and commanded them to never again speak or teach in the name of Jesus. That'll be easy enough. No worries. To which Peter would say, okay, that's fine with me. We're just going to retire graciously. We'll go over to Tel Aviv and we'll go surfing in the Mediterranean. It'll be fine. No worries. There is nothing to see. No, that didn't happen. Verse 19. Peter and John replied, do you think that God wants us to obey you rather than him? Really? We cannot, top, we cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. You could rip our tongues out and we'd still preach. You can't stop us doing this. And so the council responded and thought, oh, okay, verse 21 and 22, they threatened them further. But then they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. They can't just crucify these two guys and think it'll go away. Last time when they did that to Jesus, everybody pretty much had scattered. But now there's 12,000 people going, woohoo, Jesus is awesome. And they really reckon they can just sort of silence. They've got a problem. It's just like, just don't say anything more, please. So what happens next? Well, Peter and John go back to the Christians. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. I reckon with a bit of a laugh, you know, you're not going to believe what happened. And then when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. What did they do? They prayed and they said these words. O sovereign Lord, King, Lord who is king, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? 
the kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. What is their response in all of this? They pray. And in particular, they prayed the word of God back to God. Did you see that? They came together and said, what are we going to say to God? We're going to pray to him a psalm, a psalm of David. See, it's as they heard the word of God that they were able to speak the word of God. I think this is a really good model for us as we pray. Uh, I, uh, I'd encourage you, if you don't already do this, to have a time each day when you read the Bible for yourself. It might just be a couple of verses or a bit longer if you like. Hear the word of God and then speak to God. You can actually use what he has said to you as a way of framing what you will say to him. That's what we've got here. This is exactly what they've done. These guys here, are in, their prayers are informed by the word of God. So the question is, what would you have prayed for if you were in that situation? That Peter and John have just been effectively beaten up or so close to it for being followers of Jesus. What would you pray to God? Would you pray, what would you pray given the strong opposition by the Jewish leaders? What would you pray now that the Israelite leaders have started to arrest the apostles like they did for Jesus? I reckon I know what I'd pray. I'd say, please protect them from physical harm. I reckon I'd pray that the rulers would stop opposing the spread of the gospel of Jesus. And I reckon I'd pray probably that the church would no longer be opposed by its enemies. Stop the persecution. Stop the mean people saying mean things about our God. But they didn't pray that. That's not what they prayed. This persecuted church didn't pray that the persecution would go away. What did they pray for? Verse 29 and 30. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What do they pray for? They prayed for boldness, not protection. They wanted boldness in preaching the word of God. And they also prayed that they would have more special signs and wonders so that they'd have more opportunities like they had when they healed this man. They didn't ask for the opposition to stop. They asked for boldness. See, we hear stories all the time about what's happening with the persecuted church around the world. You know, we Christians get a bit of a scrape and a bruise occasionally not physically for being followers of Jesus 
But people around the world, even this day, have been put to death because they're followers of Jesus. What do we pray for them? It's tempting to pray, Lord, please help them not to be physically harmed. Please lead those horrible, evil people to stop killing Christians. But if we pray like the apostles did, we would pray that they would be bold and courageous in preaching the word of God. Because there's more to life than our health. There's more to life than our safety. The most important thing we can do is tell people about Jesus. And so what happened? The final verse. After this prayer, the meeting place shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they preached the word of God with boldness. Their prayer was answered. It wasn't that there was a big lightning strike upon, upon the Sanhedrin that knocked out all of the key leaders of God's, you know, the, the Jews and things. That, and stop. That didn't happen. What happened was the meeting room shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit so that they would speak boldly. See, riding that wave of Pentecost was exhilarating for the first believers, but it was also bumpy, and it's going to get bumpier. Today we've seen how opposition has started outside, but next week we'll see that it's going to start to head inside. Next week we'll see that Satan himself will attack the church from within. And so we should pray as the disciples have prayed, that in the midst of turmoil, we would be bold. Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank you for the remarkable example that these apostles had, that these first believers had, that even though their lives were at risk, they preached the gospel with power and boldness because you filled them with your spirit to do so. Loving Father, please fill the persecuted church afresh with your Holy Spirit so that with great boldness and power they might preach Christ. And for us too here in Australia, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit to preach your word boldly, even though it seems that it's no longer an attractive thing to be a follower of Jesus. Help us to not be scared, but to have your powerful Holy Spirit lead us to preach Christ boldly so that we might too see a great harvest for your name that there would be thousands who would believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. For there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Next week, talk for the attack of Satan.